All right. Well, good morning. It is really a privilege. Uh, I appreciate uh, Pastor Jeff's invitation uh, to have me uh, share uh, the sermon this morning. Um, And what I thought I would do is share a little bit about myself and a little bit about uh, the work itself uh, that I do with International Justice Mission, and also just look at a, a scripture passage that um, from the book of Judges. So we're going to take a little bit of a detour from the series that we've been doing on, on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we are here today in the book of Judges, uh, chapters 6 and 7. As, as uh, Pastor Jeff said, um, I started my professional career in the Philadelphia area as, as a lawyer. And for 15 years, that's what I did. I was an attorney, uh, most of it with the Attorney General's office in the state of New Jersey. And we had this opportunity um, sometime in 2008 uh, to become part of an organization called International Justice Mission, which I was just finding out myself exactly what it was. But the thing that I think really appealed to me was, wow, you can actually use lawyers to do some good in this world? I I was really excited about that opportunity. Um, And it really did take us on an adventure, Um, our family uh, got to go overseas as I headed up one of our field offices. Um, but just a little bit about the kind of work that it looks like is we identify um, violent crimes that the poor suffer from around the world. And so IGM is a Christian uh, human rights organization. It's probably the largest anti-trafficking organization in the world, anti-slavery organization in the world. So as you can tell from the, those kind of things, that those are the kind of crimes that we look at. It's often the poor that are victimized because they're vulnerable, because they don't have resources, they don't have friends and access, so if there's no system to protect them, right? If they don't have any kind of law enforcement or those kinds of things working, if the society around in many developing countries are not functioning as it should, it makes the poor that much more vulnerable to exploitation. So often the exploitation looks like people trapped in slavery, um, young girls being trafficked into, into the red light areas and the brothels, um, it looks like um, police who will put, take round up poor people and put them in jail if they don't pay for a bribe, and so there's police abuse of powers. It often looks like when a widow, when her husband dies, um, some, of the, some of the family members of the husband or neighbors around will come and chase the widow and their families off the land and take everything from them because they just can't. Right? Oftentimes when, when poor are exploited, you know, the question really is, why does it happen? because they can get away with it, right? There really isn't anything that people can do when you don't have any means to protect yourself. Um, some of the other type of, sub, type of issues are just child sexual abuse. Um, denial of citizenship rights is also one of the areas we work in. Oftentimes we find minority communities in certain countries, like for example in Thailand, um, really don't fit in specifically to being Thai or being Burmese or, you know, so oftentimes they find themselves in the fringes. So they don't have, they're people without a country. They're people without a citizenship. What that means is they're completely vulnerable to any kind of exploitation. They can't really get proper education. If they get sick, they don't have any ID cards to get medicine and they don't get to be able to get jobs and those kind of things. So when you're vulnerable and you're desperate, well, for people to take advantage of you, becomes that much more easier. So IJM's work really takes a look at it from these lenses, which is how can we create accountability and build a public justice system, which is basically law enforcement, right, police and those kinds of things, 
the courts and prosecutors who should really um, make sure that these criminals are, 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 are punished so that they don't have the impunity to continue to commit this crime. And then the social service sector, which is those individuals who are supposed to provide rehabilitation and services. So oftentimes our work looks like going into countries where the system is broken and coming alongside and trying to do those things in partnership, a lot of times in sort of a difficult partnership, because if the system's broken and corrupt and there's apathy there, you're sort of forcing a system to work. So I would just say it like this. If you look at a pipe justice as a pipeline from, from you know, one end to the other, you don't want a person to come into that pipeline who's, who's suffering from injustice and come out of it experiencing even more injustice. Right? You want them to come out and experience some sort of justice. And so it's trying to look at what's broken in that pipeline and how can we fix it. And you know, the question that I think I want us to think about today, um, and this is something that I've really experienced with the work of IGM, and I promise I won't talk about just this. I will, I will definitely move to scripture as well. <laughs> um, but it's this idea of being afraid, right? Of being fearful when you feel like you're in danger when you feel vulnerable and unsafe, what is that like? What is that experience of being afraid like? And what is the impact that fear has on our being? Now, what does it do to us? Now, all of us come from very different circumstances, a different background, so we have very different experiences of that. Um, and so I know that as I'm speaking to a, you know, a, a, a congregation from various experiences of it, so if you were in the military, if you had experienced active combat, or if you're in law enforcement of some kind, then you know firsthand what that fear looks like. You know the experience of your life on the line and, 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 and what that does to all of your senses and what that experience is, right? That's, that's a very real part of your story. And you're well aware of, of, of the impact. Maybe it's just a matter of you grew up in a certain neighborhood or a certain situation where fear of just being in danger was just a reality. You know, maybe that was just something, and so you can relate or you can connect from that standpoint. Um, and I myself, you know, grew up in Philadelphia, you know, as Pastor Jeff said, um, in North Philadelphia. And it was in the inner city area, so I, I remember the same kinds of experiences. It's one of those things where, you know, Philly is one of those places where if you're in your own block, in your own neighborhood, you're pretty fine. Everybody sort of takes care of each other. But you venture about two blocks over and you don't know what's, what's waiting, waiting for you there because it's just a different dynamics. And there's a lot of territorial stuff. And I do remember, like, I was probably around the age of 11 when my parents would ask me to walk down to the grocery store, which was really like five, seven minutes away, you know, to buy some milk or something like that. And there's always these certain places where you get to and you're just afraid. Specifically, I still remember this very clearly. There was an underpass, you know, and then and it was like you had to walk underneath it, and there was it was probably only going to take me about twelve seconds, but it felt like an eternity because I don't know what was there. You know, I don't know who was there and what kind of thing awaits us. So, those are some of my experiences with fear. But anything, even if you've been on an airplane, you know, and, and, and can you relate to this? Because because I can. Um, there's turbulence that happens, right? And we're all sort of used to some turbulence. But then there's this other kind of turbulence when you're like, you know, and I've been on a plane where the plane just was flying and it just dropped. And it literally felt like it dropped. And all of a sudden, I'm not sure, you know, what's going on here. And we sort of do these weird things in situations like that. We look at each other like we know from the other passengers know something more or something like that. But then nobody wants to act 
afraid, right, and show it. So we all just smile and act like we're normal. <laughs> but deep inside, you're petrified, like, is this it? Is this something going to happen? What's happening to the plane? Was the pilot okay? You know, the thing is, though, many of those experiences are temporary, right? They're for a period of time, and it does things to us, but it is short in duration. Um, but the thing that I think, I think maybe we can all connect with, whatever the experiences or levels have been, is that it's those times when every other priority drops down considerably in importance, right? When you're afraid, fear has the power to take over our entire being, your mind, your body, your emotions. It blocks us from focusing on anything else, right? Because your senses are just very carefully attuned to those kinds of risks that you're in the middle of. And so I wanted to talk today about what if, what if the fear from the dangers around us just never passes away, right? What if this sense of impending doom is something that just always is there, it doesn't go away? What kind of person do you become if you always felt unsafe? And there is people in this world who do experience that every single day of their life. You know, some of the statistics say that there's 4 billion people in this world who live in that state of fear because they say that they live outside the protection of the law. There is no law there that they can turn to. There's nothing. There's no 911 that you dial. There's, there's no hope at all. So they never stop feeling unsafe. And, you know, the, because if, if someone comes after them, some bad guys come after them, there is no one, no system to protect them. And if there is a system, it's either broken or corrupt or just so non-existent that people can act with impunity in taking advantage of you because there's no fear of going to jail. And what I've also seen and just with IGM's work is that it's incredibly profitable to abuse and enslave and traffic the vulnerable poor. And so often what the poor have to do is just live in that reality, live in that reality and always feel a sense of hopelessness. I'll just share one quick example about that. There was a massive effort made in, in, um, in Kenya to try to uh, help the poor in terms of education, which makes absolute sense, right? I mean, you, 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 you educate people, and education is a way to lift your lot out of life. And so phenomenal schools were built. A school, I mean, was built. Quality teachers, quality resources, equipments, all that kind of stuff, including some computers and things like that. And it was built in a very poor rural area for people to come and have education. And so it was, it was a great strategy, a great investment. But something weird started to happen, and the people who built the schools and the teachers couldn't understand what was happening. Somewhere around when, when, when some of the, the students, some of the girls were about 11, 12 years old, parents started to pull their kids out of school. Even though it was like a phenomenal school, and if you get educated, you get a degree you're going to really change your family's dynamics. You're going to be in an entirely different situation because you can get a job, you can support them. It's your opportunity. But what they didn't realize, but what those parents realized in the poor was, the most dangerous place for a young girl at the age of 12 is the walk to school and the walk back home from school, right, as she's at that early stage of, of puberty. And so they made the choice. Phenomenal opportunity for education, 
my girl is not safe. And they often consistently chose to pull them out of school and be safe. Now, the reality is that the criminal industry, um, uh, the, the, um, the UN did a study here and just, just looked at labor uh, trafficking, trafficking for sex and labor. And here's what they found. $150 billion per year is what trafficking profits. It is next to drugs, the largest criminal industry in the world. But to put that in perspective, if you take the combined profit of all the money that's made by Google in a year, Starbucks and Nike, it doesn't come close to the profit of trafficking. No wonder this happens. It's all about money. It's an economic crime. And some of the things that I didn't realize initially, but I have in, and since working for the International Justice Mission is, there are still 36 million people in slavery today in this world, which means we are living in the time in history when there's more people in slavery than ever before. It's, it's a massive problem. If you're a, a, a woman or a girl between the age of 15 to 44, you are more likely to die from gender violence than cancer, traffic accidents, malaria, and war combined. That is the reality for these 4 billion people around the world. And so what I thought I would do is I would, I would, we would take a little time and take a look at a couple of stories. Um, one from the book of uh, Judges here, another one from, from a, a case that I wanted to share with you guys from my work. And so I think for me, my hope is that we can examine this idea of understanding what fear and violence does to an individual and ask this difficult question, and I think we should all wrestle with this, God, where are you in all of this? God, where are you? So let's take a look at the book of Judges first and just, just read, look at three verses right now from verses 3 through 6. Actually, that's four verses. <laughs> um, and this is the background of it, because I want to I talk about Gideon and his story, but I think looking at the background is important. And here's what it says. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land they came in. And Israel was brought low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So that's the background, right, behind this story of Gideon, which many, many of you may have even just learned at Sunday school. But the background is that Israel had entered the promised land that God had promised, but they were just this small people group compared to these powerful established nations there, like the Midianites and the Amalekites. And the people from the east is how they were referred to. And these people would come up during harvest time and say, you know what? We can plunder and take advantage of the Israelites. Why? Because we simply can. They have no means of protecting themselves. So Israel was used to this kind of reality. That was their reality. Every year or on harvest time, they had to deal with the fact that they were going to be plundered by a more powerful people group that were in existence there. And that became the norm and the circumstances because they just had no way of protecting themselves. They had no way of dealing with it. It says that they cried out to the Lord. 
You know, because the, the swarm of people that came were so numerous, it was like locusts is how the scripture refers to it, right? That they could not even be counted. And so what does God do? God hears and sees what these people are experiencing, and so here is God's plan to help them. And we find that in verse 11 and 12. And it says here that now the angel of the Lord came, and who does he come to? It says that he comes to Gideon. And there's something interesting here. He comes to Gideon, and it says Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Right? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Or maybe in other uh, translations it says, O mighty warrior or O mighty hero. But I'm not much in the agricultural world. I don't understand all that stuff. But I think I do know one little thing, which is I don't think you beat out wheat in the wine press. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you're a farmer, you don't take your wheat and take it into a wine press, and that's where you do the threshing. So clearly, there's something else going on here, and it tells us here he was trying to hide it from the Midianites. So there's something interesting we're going to find out about Gideon throughout the story. He's not exactly the most courageous guy. Because he looks at the circumstances, but he's pretty real, realistic, I think. He looks at the fact that these people are going to come and plunder. I have this little bit of stuff that I need to feed my family, and this is our sustenance, and this is our income, maybe. I'm going to find a way to hide it. And he goes into this other place and he says, that's where he's going to, he's going to, he's going to do whatever it is, what, whatever threshing, beating wheat does to a beat. I don't know, I mean to wheat. <laughs> I don't know what, what it is. But, but there he is. And, and we find God coming to him or the angel of the Lord. And, and you'll find whenever scripture uses this phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's actually talking about a, a, a presence of God himself. Um, many times God himself is coming to Gideon here. And so it comes to him and he says something like this. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. And I got to think, and as we keep reading more about Gideon, Gideon had to do one of these kind of things. Me? Not me. Not me. And we'll find in his story that he is not in any shape or form believing that kind of title that God attributes to him. In fact, he, as he knows himself, doesn't find himself any kind of a hero, any kind of a mighty man. So Gideon is just as surprised by this angel coming and calling on him. And so Gideon clearly does not want to take up the call here. He doesn't want to do that. And I'll, and I'll just read a few verses just to say, in verse 14, it says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, he being Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. You see, Gideon very rationally sort of looks at this situation and goes, Look, I'm from this Manasseh tribe. That's the smallest, weakest tribe. If that isn't bad enough, my family and within that is the smallest there, and I'm the least within even my own family. Like, you just got the wrong guy. That's the message that he's trying to send, right? He's absolutely trying to say, God, that mission, you want to find somebody else, right? That's exactly where it is. And so he sees himself as anything but a mighty hero. I want to share with you, and I'll kind of move back and forth. I want to share with you the story about a man named Kuti. Um, 
Kuti and his family worked as slaves inside of a rice mill in the southern part of India. Um, and in terms of being there, this was what their home was. It was a little compound room like this where he and his wife and his four children lived. And so what his life looked like was, for pretty much his entire, for, for, for most of his life, was getting up about 3 o'clock in the morning and beginning the process of boiling the rice and getting it started, from picking it to boiling it to drying it to, to, to uh, sacking it. He worked inside of a rice mill. And so the owners, what they do is they say, look, the work itself is about 16 hours, you know, and sometimes 18 hours. And so stay here and you need to live here. And so this is where Kuti and his family worked. And as you can see from the inside of the home, they, that was their life possessions pretty much. That's all they had and a the, and the little bit of clothes on the other side where, where the picture is not taken. And he had four children between the ages of five and 13. And all of them lived and this was their reality. This is where they worked. They could never leave this place. If you wanted to leave and step outside, you know, you had to get explicit permission, you know, from the owner. The owner himself is actually quite a powerful man in this community. He owned lots of land, lots of fields, and this was just one of his businesses. He was sort of well-known, prominent person, connected with politicians, connected with those in power. You know, so he was a man of considerable influence. And Kutti is a man that's from the lowest community group, which you may or may not have heard in India. It's called a Dalit community. Um, for the longest time, they were referred to in a derogatory term as untouchables. It was the untouchable community. And there's actually several hundred million untouchables or Dalits, and so Kutti is one of them. And oftentimes, this is the community group because they're at the bottom of the strata of society. They're the ones that are taken advantage of. And even if they wanted to go to a hospital or anything like that, it was only with permission. And often what they would do was they would say, okay, here's what you do. Leave those kids here and then you go and do what you need to do, right? The, the family, somebody was kept as collateral to ensure that the others would return. And so this is a photo, the next one, of, of when I first met Kuti. You know, and he's probably about, you know, 30 years old. Um, our investigators, IGM's investigators, went to the woods that were just behind the, the rice mill. And so we were able to ask him to sneak out, and really the whole in encounter was about 20 minutes. And he was scared to death just to be out for 20 minutes because he didn't know if something happens, what, what kind of trouble he'll get into. But I remember meeting him, and he was just, just scruffy with a beard, and he, he couldn't really look us in the face. He looked like he hadn't slept because he just wasn't really able to connect and, and engage. And so we started to ask him, or our investigators started to ask him questions to find out his story and what was happening. And he relayed all of these things that I said about having his four kids and where they lived, and this is pretty much where they've been all their life. And at one point, what the owner had said was, look, there's a job if you want to work here, and you'll get paid. And so essentially, he had bought him by saying, look, we'll give you a little bit of money up front as an advance. And, so, and when you pay it off, it's fine, you can leave. That's the way that that that's kind of trafficking works. Well, what happens is, you know, he, you know, and, and oftentimes the equivalent of what people borrow is about four dollars worth. You know, maybe about twenty dollars worth, maybe a hundred dollars worth, let's say. And then you'll find people working for five years, fifteen years, twenty years, thirty years, two, three generations, trying to pay off that debt, which is basically not any kind of a debt, right? But but a bait to pull the people in. 
And then the owners continue to say, no, 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 you haven't finished paying it off yet. And I understood because we could show we could show Kuti like denominations, and he couldn't tell a 50, do, 50 rupees, which is Indian currency dollar, from a 10 or a 100. He had no idea, he doesn't, he's illiterate, right? He doesn't know how to, uh, to, to read or write, so therefore then, it's very much dependent on whatever the owner says, what your situation is. No, you still owe this much, okay. And because of the owner's power, because of the owner's um, influence, you know, Kuti was simply not a person who was going to challenge. And oftentimes there were other families inside of this rice mill and what they would do is they would just not leave because they've seen if somebody tried to run away, the owners would find them, bring them back, beat them. And so they recognized that there was really no escape. That if you tried to do something like that, you are just going to put yourself in more harm's way. And Kuti's own personal experience, and I remember this, I asked him how old he was. He didn't know numbers. And so... He looked embarrassed to answer it, but he tried to answer it. And I would say he's probably, what, like 30-ish maybe or something like that, maybe a little more. It's hard to tell when, when you work so much, right? It, it's life sort of ages you differently. Um, but he just said nine because he just thought that's a number or something that he knows. And so I find why it's so easy to take advantage of someone when they just don't have any real capacity to understand how to engage with the world at that level. And so this is how oftentimes that they're exploited because of their low standing in society and because there's no real police or law enforcement or anything like that to turn to for help. So what does a man like Kuti do? How does God operate in that situation when when you're just so filled with fear? I think Gideon's story is helpful for me to understand how God deals with fearful people. You see, Gideon is, as, as we read in those verses, unconvinced, right? Like he's the man for the job. So what he does is he asks for a sign. Take a look at verses 17 and 18, and you'll see here what he says. He says, and he said to him, this is Gideon speaking to the angel of the Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he, the angel of the Lord, he said, I will stay till you return. This whole um, thread of signs is something we'll find throughout Gideon's story. And this is the first time that he asked for it. He says, look, can you give me some sort of a sign? Stay here. I want a sign. And so this particular sign that he just says, stay here, I got to give you something, I got to give you a present, I got to, and the present that he offers is, I'm going to prepare you a meal. And so Gideon says, and this is, you know, very, very hospitable, uh, you know, culture, right? When a guest comes, you must provide them something to eat, give them something, because they, you know, and that's just the way you engage. And so Gideon says, let me prepare something for you. And he goes about preparing. And it says in the text later that the angel of the Lord is sitting under the terebinth tree. And that's where the angel of the Lord is. And so Gideon prepares, and, and, and what he actually prepares is quite an elaborate meal because he decides to prepare a young goat and unleavened cakes from an epoch, I don't know how much that is, of flour. And so this is what he decides to prepare. Now, preparing food those days is not quite like what we have here, right? I mean, when you're going to prepare goat meat and cake, you're going to probably start with a live goat, right? Because right? it's going to take a while to, to get to a plate of stew or food on, on, on a, in a bowl somewhere, right? 
But Gideon is going about in his kitchen and preparing it. And this is sort of the way I picture the whole thing. I picture Gideon, you know, step by step and preparing it. And I would think it's got to take an hour or hours to do this. I don't know how long it takes to make cake, but, you know, sounds like it would take a long time. <laughs> and so here's Gideon in the active sense of preparing the food. And if I were Gideon, I would be doing this every once in a while, peeking out. You still here? All right. Okay. And then an hour later, peeking out, and there's the angel of the Lord still sitting under the tree. Because here's what you're probably thinking. If you got the wrong guy at some point, the angel of the Lord's got to realize, oh, shoot, wrong house, right? And there's an hour or two for him to kind of figure that out, and by that point, maybe he'll just leave, or maybe he'll realize, look, this guy just can't cut it. This Gideon guy can't cut it. But... To Gideon's surprise, and really the way God sort of deals with a man's own weakness, there's no leaving. The angel just stays there. And for that entire time that he's preparing the meal, there's God patiently waiting for him. Gideon doesn't believe it himself, but God does, right? And that's that's what we see here. And he prepares this meal, and he brings it to the angel of the Lord, and it says that he takes the cake and, and, and the food, and he puts it there on a rock. And then it says that, that the angel takes a staff, and the tip of the staff that was in his hand touched the meat and the cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. There's a pretty amazing sign, right? It's like fire is going to come from the rock and consume everything. I would be pretty impressed by that. And Gideon himself seems to be pretty impressed because he says in that, he says, I have seen face to face the angel of the Lord, for now I have seen it. He's, he's, he's awed by it, right? There's an experience of something, and it gives him a certain strength or confidence. And God actually gives him a little mini mission to do, which we won't really get into much here, but he says, look, here's what I want you to do. There's an altar to Baal in your hometown. You're going to take a couple of, couple of bulls and tie them and tear down that statue of Baal today. That's not easy for Gideon to do. You know, and we, we, you know, I won't have much time to get into it, but he does do it. He does do it, but here's how he does it. But because he was too afraid, is what it says, of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And that's verse 27 of chapter 6, right? He was too afraid to do it by day. He did it by night. And in fact, the next... So that's, that's Gideon. But the next day, all, you know, all, all the town is up in arms about what the heck happened here? Who knocked down the prophet of Baal? What's going on here? And Gideon's not speaking up. Gideon's not taking ownership of this stuff. And they sort of find out that it's Gideon who did it. And they come to kill Gideon. And it's Gideon's dad who steps in front to protect Gideon and says, if anybody messes with my son, you're going to have to mess with me first. Right? So you get a sense that Gideon isn't exactly still finding his pace, you know, finding his courage. And that's the struggle that he has. Meanwhile, what's happening is, that the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East are starting to come. You know, those armies are starting to march from far off, but they're arriving and the people know that it's happening. And war, or at least being totally overtaken, is at hand. It's going to be in any time now. And so Gideon asks for more proof. He goes into this conversation again for more proof. And this is, for, this is the story of Gideon that we all know, right? The laying out of the fleeces. You know, and Gideon, Gideon does that. He goes, and, and, and I actually really think it's pretty clever, you know, the way Gideon kind of approaches it, because he says, Lord, 
if you are going to save Israel by my hand, you know, and this is verse 36 of that chapter, if you're going to, as you said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know it is you that will save Israel by my hand, as you said it. Right? So he says, if there's dew on the fleece, but the ground is dry. So Gideon lays out the fleece on the ground, and, and, and sure enough, he gets up next morning, and the fleece is wet. But the ground around it is completely dry. Something amazing that he asked for, and God actually answers him and gives him a sign. And I, I really do appreciate the way Gideon's mind works, because I think mine does too. He's like, what if it was just a coincidence, right? <laughs> What if I happened to put the fleece on the spot where it was a little damp? So he just flips it around and he says it the other way. He goes, Lord, if it's not too much, can I ask for one more sign? He says, can you make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet? And I'm sort of expecting God to sort of, you know, roll up his sleeves and kind of, you know, grab Gideon like this, right? But he doesn't. He says, okay, I'll give you a sign. And sure enough, what we see is that Gideon gets up the next day and it's exactly as he has God to do. And there it is. Amazing, right? Amazing. And so what's going on in there? I don't want us to walk away from that thinking that, you know, God is saying, look, if you want to know my will, lay out fleeces, you know, and we're supposed to test it to figure out what God's will for our lives is, right? I don't think that's it at all what the story's saying. I think this is showing God saying, know me, know who I am. I want you to see that I'm the kind of God who sees the weakness of the person that I've selected as my vessel and how I deal with a man who's fearful, right? I am the kind of God who's willing to give a visible reminder to stoop down to a fearful man and help him find courage to press on in a difficult situation. You know why God agrees to the fleece test, I think? Because Gideon needs it. He needs help. He's struggling. And our God is just a God who says, I have compassion to come alongside of you, to stand with you. Not so much so that we have proof and tests and that kind of stuff, but just know my character as one who cares, right? Coming back to the Kuti story, one of the biggest challenges that our IJM investigators have is building up what we call victim support. And by that, the challenge is that in order to really rescue someone, and here's how we do it after we document it, we come on a rescue operation with the police and try to get them out of there, uh, all the people that are there, and take them to the police station, and, and then they go through a formal kind of inquiry process. But the most critical step is this, that when a police officer comes in and asks a question, are you in this situation? Is this accurate? Is what this organization is saying to us, is your reality, is that true or not? you have to be able to speak up, right? Because ultimately, if it, the victim of the crime needs to be able to say, yes, I'm a victim of the crime, and, and, and that makes sense, right? Even law enforcement needs that to sort of mobilize the next step of the process. But if you've been a slave all your life, if the owners have told you when to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, what to do, everything is controlled by somebody else and you've just never had that, imagine the courage that it would take, the ability to speak up and say, yes, these people, this guy has been doing this to me. Not going to happen. Right? Not going to happen. So our investigators spend a considerable amount of time trying to work in those kind of woods and back situations, engaging with them to give them a sense of who they are. 
what rights they have, that we will be with you. Don't worry, you know, speak up. Find the courage to do it, you know? And oftentimes, many, many times, we find that people like Kuti and others are just too scared to speak up because of the vast difference in power between himself and the owner, you know? And, uh, and because they've been threatened and because they've been under all kinds of abuses, they simply are not confident enough to do that. And so Kuti was very hesitant um, because what if the police are in cahoots with the owner? Right? That's often what they think is, oh, yeah, but it's all linked in. All I'm doing is just setting my own trap because those officers are just going to turn against me and it's just going to make my life even worse. So it takes a really long time for the, for, for the investigators to gain trust and then to build up the courage. And then once we feel like there's that courage and they're willing to say their sto- stories, that's when we take the case to the law enforcement officers and says, look, go and, and find out you know, what's going on. And I remember in this particular case itself, and I remember it so much because it was actually my very first case that I've ever done, um, coming with the police and we were on an operation and we come in and it has to happen quickly. The key is to try to get in and out as fast as you can before the owner realizes what's happening, before they can make some phone calls. And the biggest challenge, honestly, is the mob that can gather there very quickly because if the mob is too big and if it's hundreds of people who have some sort of ties or support or family relationship with the owners, the police just not are going to be able to withstand it. And they'll actually turn on the police and the police will not have the, the sort of authority to, 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 to you know, be in control of that situation. And so I still remember, you know, as we were hurrying and trying to get um, Kuti and his family packed up, you know, and still remember sort of he, he walked up and he sees all this happening and he looked up. He's a, he's a shorter man. He looked up like this as he was packing down there and he recognized me, you know, from being in the woods. And he just sort of gave this sort of nod like, I'll do it. I'll, I, 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 because I remembered asking, do you have the courage to speak up? And he sort of nodded like, yes, I do, I do. I'll never forget that little glimmer of courage that I saw in this man's face. And so this photo is actually later in that day where he, uh, after the release certificate, when the government officials hand him a release certificate on that day. And basically, nobody needs a certificate of freedom, right? I mean, you should be free because you're free. But this is a document that allows him to be able to say, look, if anybody comes after me, I have proof here that the government has intervened in this situation and police need to protect me. And so this is a document that we use oftentimes to help victims to, to, to have more standing uh, and more safety you know, within their community. But this is that day of rescue there um, when, when finally, after a long day of inquiry and questioning and that kind of stuff, and it's challenging. You know, the owners are gathering people are outside the police station. They're making phone calls, and we're trying to hold that situation down and trying to keep this government official from losing his courage to do the right thing. And, you know, it, it takes quite a bit, but, but to get to that point is a big miracle. It's an amazing thing. And then what happens with our, our work part is, that this is the day that our social workers will begin to start what we call a two-year aftercare program and working with these individuals and their families to help give them proper documents. They have no proof of any kind of... They, they have no ID proof, right? So this release certificate is actually the first thing that acknowledges who they are. So we give them you know, voters' cards and, and all kinds of community certificates and help get them certain benefits that the government and enables them to get, begin trauma counseling and treatment plans and put their kids in school and begin to help them find a job and sort of help them to know how to be husband and wife, 
right? Because you've never had to do those things and all kinds of issues and things like that are there. And so it's a lengthy, long, two years at least process where you're trying to really take someone on this journey and help them to know how to live life in freedom, help life live life safely. You know, coming back to the biblical text, um, so the so the... So now Gideon is ready, right? He's got the two signs that God has given him and he's ready to go forward in this battle and he gathers together a ragtag bunch of individuals to be his army. And he has about 32,000 people come in. That's pretty good. Not bad, right? History tells us that the Midianites and these groups had somewhere between their armies about 120,000 to 150,000. That's why they said they were so vast that they couldn't even count them and number them. But at least they have a shot. Right? You know, it's, it's one to five ratio, but at least there's a shot. And then God does something that makes absolutely no sense to, to, to all of us. He starts to whittle down the troops, right? So the, 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 the 32,000, God whittles it down and says, and he does the process, and I won't get into all of that here, but it goes, to 20, you know, it goes down, 22,000 leave, and there's only 10,000 left. Okay, I, can you imagine what Gideon must be thinking? Like, at least I have the numbers here starting to be pretty good. And then God says, no, oh, that's still too much, Gideon. That's still too much. We need to do something here. And he puts this test, you know, and somehow whittles it down to just 300 soldiers. 300. That's it. Right? God reduces that in number dramatically. And it actually tells us in the text why God does it. He says, look, Israel, you're going to boast that it was by your hand that you had victory over the Midianites. You won't see me, you know, if you don't understand that this was very clearly me. That's a hard thing when God makes us do that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, God, but i really rather have the odds on my side. I promise, I promise I'll believe that it was you, <laughs> right? Because I can imagine how Gideon's sort of entering into that situation. But that's the reality. That's what the war is going to look like. Maybe 100,000, 120, 150,000 soldiers against 300 on the other side. I mean, that looks like certain slaughter for Israel, doesn't it? It looks like a completely hopeless situation. The enemies are too numerous, too powerful. And I got to think there was a lot of chatter going on in that whole community saying, maybe it's just better to do what we did every year before and just surrender, hand over our stuff, because at least we'll stay alive instead of taking on this ridiculous fight. The odds are not in our favor. It's absurd. Absurd for us to fight like this. You know, $150 billion is a trafficking industry. Fighting that also seems absurd, right? Trying to take on the giant of slavery, for example, in places around the world like Ghana or Thailand or Brazil or India, it just seems like, why even bother? How are you going to ever do that? It seems too audacious, too impossible, like fighting the Midianites, it's very easy for all of us to rationalize that it's hopeless and maybe it's better to do nothing because what real difference is that going to take? The massive difference in size. You know, there's, there's history that it should encourage us. You know, the, the fight against the transatlantic slave trade, the British slave trade, right? It tells us that there was, it was Christians actually who were part of the abolition movement who joined and really they started by just meeting together at a print, print the shop in London praying. God, show us what to do. You know, and God began to move in this seemingly impossible task. And there was nobody on their side. The entire economy, right, of the British Empire was built on slave labor. 
they weren't going to let go of it. And it was easier for people to look the other way and just say, well, that's just normal and justified and rationalize it. And it was a fight that just seemed like, why try, why, why bother? But that was a struggle that continued and God showed up. Right? God hears the cries. And I think God hears today the cries of people like Kuti. And God does show up. God will show up. I found some amazing things being able to happen, and I'll just share a couple of quick examples of it. You know, IJM started working in, in, in Cambodia, in the capital city of Phnom Penh, fighting sex trafficking. And when we entered there, it was about 13 years ago, um, you could get a minor as young as six years old very openly on the streets, you know, and it was no problem. Nobody was afraid of offering that because there was no risk for offering it. And it was complete impunity by which this crime has happened. And for about 12 years, we continued to press on in this city and fight this battle and build, change things and get accountability and build law enforcement and rally the community groups and, and do all kinds of stuff, which is, which is quite involved there. But we did a measurement. You know, we, we do a baseline study before and a baseline afterwards. And we did a measurement last year. And we realized something amazing. Less than one-tenth of one percent of minors being able to be found, made available in that entire city. One-tenth of one percent when it was completely open. Same thing in the city of Cebu, which is the second largest city in the Philippines. When we first started there, sex trafficking was rampant. And in just a matter of four years, we did a a measurement there again, and we found a 79% reduction in the availability of minor girls and children uh, and so what I've seen is that God does show up. God is able to change these things. This is God's world that he created. We are part of his kingdom. And God does have a plan. And shockingly, yeah. his plan is us. <laughs> Good or bad, you know, that we are his plan. But we do need reminders and encouragements to keep trusting God in this fight. So how does Gideon's story end? How does it end? Well, we find it moves into the next chapter in chapter 7. And it's in verses 9 through 15 here. And let's focus on just first two verses now. It says here, that same night, so this is the night before the battle, right? That same night the Lord said, the Lord said to him, this is to Gideon, Arise, go against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Pause, let's pause here for one second here. Think about this now. It's the night before the battle, and he says, Arise and go down. Look, I've given it to you. It's yours. Victory is yours. But if you are afraid, look, here's what you should do. This time, Gideon's not the one asking for a sign. God's actually offering him something. He's offering him, and he's coming to him and saying, Look, I want to extend myself to you, Gideon, because I know you're still afraid. I know you're still not sure if this is going to work out. And I know you need me, so I will, I, will, I will be here for you. I will show up for you. And so what does God do? Well, this is uh, interesting. And, and you shall hear, he says, but if, you and you, if you're afraid to go down, go down, but if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Porah, your servant. And you shall hear what they are saying, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. What are they saying? That afterwards he's going to be so strengthened that he's going to be able to go into the camp. So then he went down with Porah, his servant, to the outpost uh, of the armed men who were at camp. Next verse. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, like the, as sand is on the seashore in abundance. So it just describes again how vast this is. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man, a man, a soldier of the Midianite army, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, the cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Verse 14, and his comrade, fellow soldier, said to him, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hands the Midianites and all the camp. Think about this again, what just happened right here, right? Let's just just dig into it for a second. Gideon is still afraid. But Gideon doesn't ask for a sign. God volunteer comes first and says, look, you want, you, you want something to strengthen you? Go down to the camp. He goes in the middle of the night to the camp. And as he's sneaking in with his servant, Pura, and he, however that was, you know, the dark of the night, he comes in and he's crouching behind some bush somewhere, something like that. And he happens to be at the exact place where two enemy soldiers are talking. And he overhears a conversation. And the conversation happens to be about a dream that one of the soldiers had. And the dream happened to be something where he says, look, there was this barley loaf cake that was rolling down, tumbling in, and it flattened the tent. And it happened to be that the comrade was an interpreter of dreams. <laughs> and he was saying, oh, that's none other than Gideon who will, who, will, who will defeat us. Think about what God just did. To help Gideon's fear, he went into the mind of an enemy soldier and gave him a dream, Right? And that dream made no sense to him. And he happened to give him a soldier comrade who could sit next to him and says, I'm actually really good at interpreting dreams. Let me tell you what that means. You know what the barley loaf represents or the cake? That's Gideon. Are you kidding me? Right? Ridiculous, right? How God is so gracious to go to that great length. Again, I'm not saying each time this is exactly how God operates. God is not in the business of being figured out. I actually think that many, one of the main reasons God probably did miracles each time so differently Jesus did it is because we like to make a system out of something that says, oh, if you spit like this and rub the eye like this, that's what will work. So we'll continue to do that. But that's not the case. It's not that everything is going to turn out, Gideon had this, so I'm going to have this. But it's just that God shows up for the fearful and the weak, right? God comes even to that ridiculous length of giving a dream to an enemy soldier and Gideon happens to crouch down and hear it and happens to be strengthened by it. And it tells us after that, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. He tells his strong 300 soldiers, right? (laughs) We got this, guys, right? But now it's coming out of Gideon's mouth. It's coming out of Gideon's mouth. So after Kuti and his family went through his aftercare, you know, and we got a chance to visit him and see him, he called us one day. He had already finished and graduated, and it was really beautiful. He called us one day a couple of years after that and says, hey, listen, I'm thinking of running for election to be president of my local town. And uh, this is just an idea. We're like, well, we want to encourage him, but, you know, running for elections? You know? Are you serious? Well, guess what? Here's what the next picture shows. He ran for elections, and he won. (laughs) He won. (laughs) 
<laughs> there he is. There's one more picture. There he is, sitting at his official desk. And oftentimes, you know, officials wear a white shirt, and there's books and things like that. Important. But he is an elected official of the town. Can you imagine that? A man who was a slave. And remember the first picture is a little hard to see, but just, just bearded and, and ragged and weak and, and afraid, afraid to speak up. And now there he is, transformed, right? A leader of his community. Amazing. I think Gideon's story and Kuti's story actually points to a third story, and I'll close with that. Yours and mine. You see, they're not the only ones who suffer from fear. They're not the only ones whose faith and current confidence in God is weak or feeble. So when we're scared, how can we be certain that God is going to show up for us? How do we know that God is going to deal with just as kindly and patiently like he did for Gideon? You know, like he did uh, for Kuti. I do think the Gideon story is proof that God will go to any lengths necessary whenever we need help, right? When life overwhelms us with whatever our challenges are that just seem too big for us, maybe it's just raising kids and the challenges there. Maybe it's work and finances, Maybe it's a health issue or marriage or relationships. Something like that is just a big burden that we have no idea and it's overwhelming us. To me, the Gideon story is evidence that God will continue to be there and do whatever it takes to help us. And Kuti's story to me is, is again, just, just a reminder that God is in the fight against slavery. He always has been. He's always on the side of the weak. He's always on the side of those that are in need. And so whenever, if IGM is conducting a rescue operation, whatever is happening, one thing I know is that they're not alone. That God is in this. He is the God of justice. He is in control of all situations. And if, if that's not enough for us, you know, if, if we need even more proof, then look no further than the cross, right? The cross of Jesus Christ is proof to us, and it screams out to us. Why do you doubt me and my love and my faithfulness for you, right? Jesus hanging on the cross is saying, how do you think that I will withhold anything from you when I've given you my everything, my one and only son? If I've given you my very best, why do you think that I would withhold something small as what you're struggling with in your particular situation? God is saying, I am for you. I am on your side. I am with you in this situation. We have him. How he shows up and what he does, I don't know, right? He doesn't take Gideon off the hook when he says, I'm afraid, all right, fine, I'll find somebody else. He says, nope, I'm still going to call you. And there are going to be hard things that happen that does not make sense to us because we don't have the big bird's eye view of God's story in this world. And so sometimes we go through those hard things and we don't understand. We have to trust that there is a God who loves us, who cares for us, who's good to us, and he will do what he knows is best and to care for us. Here's the beautiful thing about the Gideon story. And I'll close on this. When God said, oh, mighty man of valor, God be with you, right? When the angel of the Lord said that, Gideon was like, that ain't me, right? Why does God say that to him? Why does the angel say that to him? Because the angel is not looking at Gideon, the man in the wine press standing there. He's looking at Gideon, 
way over here, right? For 40 years, Gideon will rule Israel and they will have safety and they will have peace. Guess who Gideon actually is and who he becomes, but he himself doesn't know it. He is a mighty man of valor, right? He is that human being. He just doesn't realize it. That's for us too. When God calls us and looks at us, God doesn't see you today. He sees who you're finished will be. He loves us because he recognizes the full me, the full you. And so when he talks to us, it makes no sense to me. God, why are you saying that? That makes no sense. Because he's talking to the me that he knows actually is, right? And when he experience, when he knows that, it just doesn't seem to make sense. When he talked to Peter, he would say things and Peter didn't understand it. But he knew who Peter was, will be, I mean, who he will be. So remember, our God is a God who is faithful, who is good, who will meet us in our weaknesses in ways that we may have never anticipated. But he will be there. And he will take us on a journey in life that oftentimes we didn't plan, we probably don't want to do, and we're too scared to go down that path. God won't spare us from those things, but he'll be with us through those things. Amen?